Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, inviting back uh, Dr. Jason Wright, who is the head of the Division of Gynecologic Oncology in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Columbia University in New York, and of course also the Editor-in-Chief of the Green Journal, Obstetrics and Gynecology. So it is always a, a pleasure to have uh, Jason on the podcast. Today we're going to talk about a really important uh, topic and a, a very interesting article that was published in our journal on um, prescription of hormone replacement therapy among cervical cancer patients with treatment-induced premature menopause. So welcome, Jason. Hi, Pedro. Thank you. Thank you uh, for having me back, and thank you for uh, highlighting and, and featuring our, our, our work. Well, of course, yeah, I think this is a really important topic, and uh, and already there's a lot of anticipation of the podcast, as I see in social media, uh, many commentaries regarding uh, this uh, particular article as well. Um, so, Jason, I wanted to start, you know, certainly in your study, uh, you mentioned that approximately 50% of newly diagnosed cervical cancer patients are premenopausal. Um, and I think, you know, certainly whether a patient undergoes a hysterectomy and bilateral or she undergoes um, chemo radiation, ovarian function is depleted. And, and, and certainly, obviously, this is a, a major issue of, of concern uh, to, to the patient and to us. But we often are focusing more on, you know, obviously issues of survival and oncologic outcomes. So I think this is obviously a, a very important topic. And, and that's why I, I think that this was a, an, an important um, manuscript to discuss. So I wanted to start by asking you, um, why did you think uh, this was a, a study that you wanted to do at this particular point? Yeah, I think this is an important question for, for women. We had previously done some work where we looked at, at women who underwent hysterectomy um, for benign indications, so premenopausal women who underwent hysterectomy um, with salpinga ophorectomy who were premenopausal. This was for benign disease. And essentially what we found, I, I think in that population, it, it's pretty clear cut that, that estrogen therapy probably has a, a benefit until the age of natural menopause. Um, we found that, that the use of estrogen replacement therapy was low. It was declining over time. And for those women who were started on estrogen replacement therapy, it tended to be very short duration of therapy. Again, putting these patients at risk for long-term sequelae of estrogen deprivation. So because of those findings, we wanted to essentially look at, at this issue in, in young patients with, with gynecologic cancer. I think for cancer patients, there are obviously you know, additional concerns from an oncologic standpoint about the, the safety of, of using hormonal therapy, but there's really very little data about how often uh, HRT was being prescribed for young patients after uh, therapy, either to potentially remove the ovaries or if the ovaries were uh, ablated due to radiation therapy. So really to get a, a sense of what practice patterns were in the community, how often patients were receiving um, HRT, and to really get a sense of, of what practice was. Yeah, Jason, I think you brought up an important point, and particularly something that often comes up in the in the discussion with our patients, and that uh, it's on the safety and the safety of hormone replacement <clears throat> therapy. Um, what do we have in the in the data uh, in the literature so far as uh, hormone replacement therapy safety in cervical cancer patients? And I was wondering if there are any guidelines from like the North American Menopause Society uh, on this topic. 
Yeah, there there are guidelines. There are, are some limited data out there suggesting that estrogen replacement therapy is safe um, for young patients with cervical cancer who undergo ovarian resection or ablation. And specifically, uh, NAMS or the North American Menopause Society has guidelines on this, and they really suggest that there's minimal safety concerns for prescribing hormone replacement therapy um, to patients with cervical cancer unless they have estrogen uh, concurrent estrogen sensitive or positive breast or endometrial cancer. So really, you know, for this population of young patients with cervical cancer, there should really be, you know, little oncologic concern, I, I think, about the safety of, of using uh, HRT. That's really great to, uh, to outline that. Um, <clears throat> so now, Jason, let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about the, the methods and uh, particularly, obviously, the use of uh, databases. You are an expert on the use of, uh, of the databases. And this one, you used the IBM Watson health market scan database for, for the study. And I believe you had used this in, in the past in other studies. Uh, what's different in, in this database to some of the other databases? Yeah, I, I think that we use the market scan database for this analysis. I think this is a database that's really well suited to answer this question. Um, really what, what this database does is it captures a, a large sample of patients in the United States um, that have commercial insurance, and it also has a, a sample of patients with Medicaid um, from 12 states. So you have really a, a, a quite large, diverse population of patients. And what's unique is that there's longitudinal follow-up over the of these patients over time. So you can track patients over time and secondly, you also have the ability to look at use of prescription drugs. So we need a way to identify patients with cervical cancer uh, who had therapy, and we need to be able to, to link that to a source where there's prescription drug data, and the market scan database is able to do both of those things. That's great. And, and Jason, just as a follow-up to that, can anybody get access to the uh, market scan database? It is. This is a database that, that that's available. It is a commercial database, so there is a fee um, that's associated with usage, and there's a contracting process. Um, but this is, a, this is a database that's been used fairly widely in, in outcomes research and, and quality improvement studies. Um, so this is data that's out there, and I, I think it's a, a great source for really answering some of these questions that are are in gynecological oncology that are difficult to answer in, in prospective trials, difficult to in, uh, answer from single institution studies. I, I think it's really an important resource. Great. Um, so now let's talk a little bit about um, the inclusion criteria. What type of uh, cervical cancer patients were included and in, in what were the exclusion criteria as well? Sure. So we captured uh, patients with newly diagnosed cervical cancer who were less than, than 50 years of age. Um, one of the limitations that I will acknowledge of, of the database is that it, there, we don't have detailed um, tumor characteristics of patients. So we don't have an exact diagnosis date. We don't know the stage uh, of patients. So we developed an algorithm to try to detect patients who were newly diagnosed with cervical cancer. Um, and to capture that, we essentially selected a cohort of, of patients less than 50 who either underwent surgical therapy with a hysterectomy, as well as a bilateral ophorectomy, or the group who received primary radiotherapy without ovarian uh, transposition. And you know, for these patients, um, just to be able to capture use of services, we required a window where they had insurance coverage. We also required that the patients had a, a plan for prescription drug coverage so we could actually capture um, use of estrogen replacement therapy. As I said, we obviously excluded those patients who did not undergo ophorectomy and the radiation therapy group. We took out patients who had ovarian transposition. Again, some of those patients, it was probably unsuccessful, um, but to be conservative, we removed those patients from the cohort as well. 
Great. So now getting on to the results, I believe it was close to 2,000 patients that you evaluated. Uh, what were the, the main highlights of the study and the take-home messages? Yeah, so we evaluated almost uh, uh, 2,000 patients. Um, again, it was a, a mix of patients underwent hysterectomy as well as pelvic radiation. So within the cohort, around 80% of the patients received pelvic radiation. Um, so probably there, there was a little bit of a skew here. And again, this is just the way we, based on coding and the way we captured patients, probably a bit of, of, of skew towards patients with locally ad advanced cervical cancer. I think probably the take-home point is, is that overall hormone replacement therapy um, was used less than we thought it was going to be used. So when you look at the entire cohort, 39% um, of patients initiated hormone replacement therapy um, within 24 months of the study period. Um, it was slightly higher in the group that underwent surgery compared to those who underwent radiotherapy. Um, I think the other um, major take-home point is for those women who did initiate hormone replacement therapy tended to be relatively short duration. So the overall du median duration of time of use of estrogen replacement therapy was only 60 days. Uh, again, it was a little bit longer in the surgery cohort than in the group that, that was in the primary radiation treatment. So I think overall low use of HRT for patients who do use it, um, short duration of, of HRT use. Yeah, so you know, really striking, and, and I want to kind of emphasize uh, some of the points you you brought up. Um, I believe you mentioned that within 24 months of primary treatment, only 39% of patients received hormone replacement, um, and it also struck me that the median duration of hormone replacement was 60 days. So why why do you think it's so low, and why do you think uh, the duration is so short? Yeah, I, I think it's so low. I, I think it's probably what you touched on earlier, Pedro, when you started the podcast. I, I think, you know, probably when we're treating the, these patients, their main concern is cure of cancer, and it's looking at, at oncologic outcomes. Um, you know, the treatment of cervical cancer is all often multidisciplinary, especially those patients who are receiving radiotherapy. So I think this is probably just one of those factors um, that probably clinicians just don't think about it as, as much as they should. It's not going to, to affect it in, in, for the most case, near-term outcomes. So it's something that's a longer-term therapy. So I think it, it's maybe something we just don't think about enough. I think they're also, you know, maybe clinicians have safety concerns about use of, of any type of hormonal therapy in patients with gynecologic cancer. Um, but again, I, I think the data that's out there is reassuring for the safety of, of this therapy. Um, as to the second point of your question, the short duration of, of therapy, again, when you look at, at guidelines for estrogen replacement therapy use, you know, overall, really the recommendation is for premenopausal women who undergo uh, 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 premature menopause, that estrogen therapy is continued until the age of natural menopause, so 50 or 51 years of age. Again, obviously in our cohort, duration of use was, was very short. I think, you know, a couple of hypotheses, you know, number one, potentially the, the, the therapy is, is being given for the acute side effects of estrogen deprivation. So, uh, you know, hot flashes, symptomatic relief. But again, I think it's important to remember that you're giving the estrogen therapy not only for, for these symptoms, but also for long-term cardiovascular protection, protection against osteoporosis. So I think we have to keep in mind that the long-term benefits of estrogen replacement therapy. I think secondly, you know, again, I think this may be something that, that, that again, you know, while we're thinking about cancer surveillance, looking for recurrence, you know, potentially this is just something that, that, that falls off for clinicians and, and patients. Again, I think when you think of, of any drug for long-term long management of drugs, you know, it's hard to maintain use. It's hard to be consistent with use of, of drugs. So I think, again, this is a call, you know, for us as clinicians, we really need to be better getting patients on therapy and making sure they're compliant and continuing the, the therapy. 
Yeah, I think very well said. And I think also for, for patients who are listening to the podcast to, to really uh, bring up this question with your physicians and, and to address those, those points, because as, as you mentioned, you know, I think that we are often just so focused on the uh, oncologic outcomes and the survival and, and discussing those points rather than, than some of these other issues and, and the, the secondary benefits, as well as you mentioned, of hormone replacement. Now, I, um, I heard you say also that more patients in the primary surgery group had hormone uh, replacement therapy versus the, the uh, radiotherapy group. Uh, well, why do you think uh, that's the case? Yeah, it's it's a great question. When you look at at the numbers, it was you know I think about fourteen percent more. So I think in the surgery group, forty nine percent used hormones versus thirty seven percent in the the radiation group. You know, my my guess is probably you know for those patients that go surgical menopause, it is a a fairly acute and, and dramatic event. Um, so I think one thought is that because of, of the the dramatic effects of hot flashes, you know, right after surgery, that these patients may be more likely to to go on hormonal replacement therapy. You know where Whereas those patients who are diagnosed start radiation therapy, it may be you know a slightly more gradual process um, for ovarian ablation and, and the symptoms to, to develop. Um, but again, I, I think this is something clearly you know also warrants further study. Yeah, and then that brings me to to the point uh, topic that you have uh, also previously published on, in uh, I believe back in two thousand eighteen, the issue of ovarian transposition. Um, I think is <clears throat> frequently performed. Um, why do you think that's the, the case? And, you know, do you routinely offer it to patients in, in your practice? Yeah, you know, we published previously on ovarian transposition, and, and unfortunately, you know, fewer than 10% of young women with cervical cancer undergo ovarian transposition before definitive radiotherapy, you know, which I, I think is really you know, probably a lost opportunity for patients and, and, and for their, their clinicians. Um, again, I, I, I don't have a good answer as to why this is occurring. I think it's probably back to, to the, you know, the, the same points that we brought up earlier. I think when patients are diagnosed with cancer, there's a push to start definitive therapy as quickly as possible. So potentially this is one of the things that we don't necessarily recognize that the value of. Um, and again, I, I think probably most of those patients who do undergo ovarian transposition, they're probably the, you know, the very young patients who are maybe con considering fertility preservation. You know, but I think it, it's, you know, important to remember that just the, the hormonal function of the ov ovaries outside of fertility preservation, there probably is, is some benefit. So I think this is, you know, another area that, that I think clearly warrants uh, further study. Again, I think this is, you know, transposition, I think is just something that's not talked about enough in, in our, in our specialty. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that that's very similar to our own practice uh, here as well. Um, now, you mentioned, you know, the the, the time to start of, uh, of the adjuvant treatment, often the chemo radiation. And there was something else in the study that, that I noted that uh, in the radiation group, also, they, it seemed that they had significantly shorter duration of hormone replacement therapy use. Um, why do you think that may be? Yeah, when we looked at the duration of use, as I said, the median was was 30 days. It was about three times longer in the, the primary surgery group than it than in the radiation group. Again, I, I think it's really hard to explain these findings. I, I think, you know, probably the, the abruptness of surgical menopause in those patients who are undergoing surgical ophorectomy, you know, probably leads to them going on hormones, potentially staying on it a, a little bit longer. I think again, my my sense is that probably a lot of patients in, in the uh, who are receiving um estrogen, it's probably 
probably due to for symptomatic relief of hot flashes, potential uh, urogenital atrophy, and not really thinking about the long-term benefits of, of estrogen replacement therapy. So maybe, you know, short duration use for management of some of these symptoms and really not thinking and, and realizing that the benefits of continuing this for, for longer term. Yeah, Jason, you also mentioned that, you know, the abrupt symptoms, and, and this is often a, a question that comes up from some, some patients with regards to, if I have a, a surgical menopause, will my symptoms be much more abrupt than, for example, my mother who had you know, this gradual process into, into the menopause? And I don't know, is, is there any data uh, in that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's certainly data for, you know, surgical menopause. And, and if you do remove the ovaries, you know, obviously it's it's a more abrupt transition than, than a natural menopause. One of the, the you know, issues we delved into a little bit when we, we started writing this manuscript was kind of looking at, uh, you know, I think we know that, that you know, dose of whole pelvic radiation is going to cause o- ovarian ablation, but kind of the duration of, of how these symptoms develop in the course of RT. And there's really not a lot of data out there. I mean, I think that's clearly, you know, another one of these areas where it would really be good to, to you know, try to get an understanding of how these symptoms develop during the, the course of, of pelvic radiotherapy. Again, I think just when you think about the physiology, uh, you know, of radiation, the effects on the ovaries, it's probably, you know, a little bit more of a, a gradual process for those women who are receiving radiation than, you know, really the abrupt removal of the ovaries at the, the time of surgery. Um, but again, really not great data on what that time course looks like for the radiation patients. Great. Um, and I wanted to ask you now a question more on, on the realms of clinical practice. Uh, when recommending hormone replacement therapy, uh, what should we do as it pertains to the route of the hormone replacement therapy? And many times this question comes up as uh, we... <laughs> Do we add progestins uh, when using estrogen replacement in this setting? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, good question. I mean, I think this is one of those practical aspects. I, I think, you know, when you, you look at, at national guidelines, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer as far as the, the route of therapy. It probably comes down to a lot of to patient preference, whether they want transdermal, whether they're interested in, in oral replacement therapy. I think probably the more important question is getting patients on to, to therapy. Um, second part of that is the progestin component of, of this. That, you know, ideally, you know, for those patients, you know, the probably the largest group in the, the surgical cohort are going to be those patients who had a hysterectomy. And for those patients, they can go on estrogen alone without a, a, a progestational component. And for those patients surger, treated surgically with trachelectomy, that's going to be a group you're going to want to, 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 to give progesterone to if they, you know, would have probably, it's probably a small cohort that would have had trachelectomy with their ovaries removed. But if there are patients who have any uterine tissue left, they obviously need that, that progestin. Um, you know, your, your question actually made me think about what the recommendation should be in those patients who receive radiation because they still obviously have their, their uterus in, in place. You know, again, theoretically, after a course of pelvic radiation, there should be little endometrial function. But this is one of those questions where it really hasn't been well studied. There really aren't good guidelines on whether or not you should use progestins in, in this patient population. My sense is it would probably be safe just to, to treat with, with estrogen therapy in, in this group of, of patients. Um, but again, there aren't, there's not good guidance. There's not good data to, for decision-making in this, this setting. Yeah. And, and Jason, just as a follow-up question to that, and I don't really always have a, a good answer for when patients ask me about this, when they ask, well, how long do I take the hormone replacement for? And you know, I'm always like, well, I, you know, to, to, you know, your symptoms, this, that, but we don't really have a concrete answer. What, what is your, your response to those questions? 
Yeah, I think, you know, again, this is outside of GYN cancer patients. When you look at guidelines just for women who undergo premature menopause, mostly for benign disease, the recommendation is to continue hormonal therapy to 50 to 51 years of age. So to, to the time of when they would have natural menopause, again, and, and it's twofold. You're really treating the, those acute symptoms, the hot flashes, the, the urogenital symptoms, but also trying to, to obtain the long-term benefits of estrogen therapy. So again, this probably should be something that the patients are on, you know, in the, in the long term, if you have a patient, you know, in their 30s who undergoes a radhist and a, a BSO or receives pelvic radiation therapy, I mean, that's 15 years before, mm -hmm. you know, natural menopause. So there's probably going to be some benefit um, to maintaining that patient on estrogen therapy. Now, you know, how you ensure compliance, how you do that, the logistics of it. Again, I think this is probably something that we don't think about a whole lot in, in gynecologic oncology, um, but there is, you know, clear benefit, I, I think, for these patients. Great. So, Jason, one one important topic that I think that we need to discuss. Uh, you, although you mentioned that seventy percent of patients uh, in this database had missing data for for race, but one of the things that that stood out was that um, black patients were thirty six percent less likely to receive hormone replacement therapy than white patients. Uh, why might that be the reason? Yeah, that's certainly a limitation of the data set. So when you look at this database, it's really two databases. It's a commercial insurance database and it's a Medicaid database. And for those patients with commercial insurance, there is not data on race. So that is certainly a big limitation. I, I would really love to have this data and look at, at racial disparities in the commercially insured cohort. So the data on race is purely for you know those patients who are, are, are Medicaid recipients. Um, again, we don't really have a, a good understanding of why race plays a role. Again, I, I think, you know, for this physiologically, there should really not be a, a difference based on, on race. I think, you know, there, there's obviously, as you well know, Peter, there's a vast literature on racial disparities in, in cervical cancer and in time to diagnosis and access to quality of care of, of outcomes. And I think this is probably one more component where we're just not doing as, as good a job as, as we could for, for Black uh, women with, with cervical cancer. Absolutely. So, Jason, just uh, coming on to uh, last few questions, um, what would you say are some of the limitations of this study? Yeah, I, I think, you know, probably the, the biggest limitation of the study I alluded to earlier is we don't have data, uh, we don't have a detailed tumor characteristics on patients. So I'd love to have this data set linked to tumor registry characteristics where we had stage, um, where we had exact date of diagnosis, we could capture a larger number of patients um, in, in the surgical arm just based on coding. Um, I'd also, if we had that data available, I'd love to be able to also demonstrate in, in this large data set um, that HRT is not associated with recurrence or, or, or long-term survival. So I think it'd be great to have more um, data around that. So I think that's the major limitation. Second limitation, big limitation, I think, is, is what we looked at. It's important to remember is just prescription of hormone replacement therapy. So just because somebody has a prescription doesn't mean they're necessarily taking the hormone <laughs> replacement therapy. So again, I, I think this is where prospective quality improvement studies looking at, at compliance um, are, are going to, to really be important going forward. So I think those are probably the two most important limitations that we had with this work. Great. And as the last question, I'd like to ask you, what will be your um, closing summary statement um, directed to physicians and to patients as it pertains to the results of the study? Yeah, I, I think as the results of the study, again, I, I think we showed that there's underuse of estrogen and, and the quality of, of estrogen replacement therapy in this population, um, it's short duration use. So I think we can do better. I think the big take home 
picture for me, and again, I, I've really taken these studies to heart in my practice. Is this something I, I conscientiously try to think about, you know, for, for these young patients who are undergoing ovarian ablative um, type therapy um, and think about the, the long-term benefits. And it's something I try to offer patients. I'm trying to be more diligent about that in, in my own practice. Again, I, I think, you know, we're so focused on, um, you know, survey initial treatment diagnosis this and then surveillance of the patients. I think this is one of those things where it can have real benefits for patients, um, but but it often, uh, again, my sense is probably gets lost in, in all of the other things that we're trying to, to do for patients with a newly diagnosed cancer. So again, I think my message for gynecologic oncologists, you know, think about this, keep this on your radar screen for patients, because in the long term, um, this is a therapy that can probably have real benefit for your patients. Yeah. And, and what would you say to the patients who are now uh, undergoing treatment or have undergone surgery for cervical cancer? Yeah, for patients, I, I would say this is a topic um, you should you should discuss with with your physician. You know, there are probably you know very valid reasons for some patients not to go on, on hormone replacement therapy, but I think this warrants a discussion um, both for pay, from a patient standpoint for looking at your immediate symptoms, but then in the longer term, your longer term health. You know, thinking 10, 15 years down the road and thinking about cardiovascular risk, osteoporosis, other things that estrogen therapy can potentially be beneficial and and, and help reduce uh, cause of mortality from. Jason, always a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. I always learn so much from uh, talking with you and discussing these important topics. Thank you again for submitting the uh, article to the uh, to the journal and congratulations to you and all the co-authors who I'm sure worked tremendously hard uh, to uh, ultimately uh, publish this, uh, this manuscript. Thank you for all that you have contributed to gynecologic oncology and continue to do so. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Pedro. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for featuring this work. And, and thank you and, and your whole team for all the great work that you're doing at, at the journal and, and the great science you're publishing. It, it's really, um, you know, it's tremendous to see the work you're doing and moving our field forward. So thank you. Thank you.